yes, I definitely say China is a pure competitor, period, full stop. I certainly wouldn't say nuclear is taken off the board. Uh, in fact, I think it's increasingly likely that you will see um, some sort of nuclear exchange if there is ever a near-peer conflict. Welcome to Convergence, Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientists, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Sanisberg, of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within the Army Futures Command. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we're talking to Zachary Tyson Brown, who's an Army veteran, analyst, consultant for the DoD, and a security fellow at the Truman National Security Project. Zach's written extensively on intelligence analysis, the changing character warfare, and foreign policy. We'll be talking to Zach today about the future of intelligence, deterrence, and competition. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so, um, you know, today we kind of want to talk to you about all the work you've done and really what, what we can think about in terms of the future of intelligence and deterrence and competition. So you really came to the attention of mad scientists and, and really a lot of thinkers within the national security field when you wrote, uh, what is it you you say you do here, which is a great um, office space reference. Thank you. Um, I, I feel like it really changed the paradigm a lot about what we think about what does it mean to be an intelligence professional um, in, in all this emerging tech, what what are we going to have as roles in the future? So, do you think you could maybe for our listeners really explain a little how how you got to writing that piece, and what do you really think it portends for the future of the intel professionals and the community itself? Sure. Uh, so, you know, I, you know, I was in the army for about a decade uh, as a, as an all source intel analyst, and I had always thought then. Um, you know, the commanders and operators that underutilized their intel analysts, always frustrated by all the stuff that we kind of knew, couldn't get across. Maybe that's a fault of my own, but I've also found that reflected in many of my colleagues that I've spoken to over the years. And really, I found the same thing when I got out of the Army and became a defense civilian intelligence officer, and then even now as a, as a private consultant. Um, that policymakers at every level, you know, we have all this information that the IC collects. We spend billions of dollars on it every year. You know, it just a lot of it is left on the cutting room floor. Um, the, that of it that does get processed and collated and put together into information or even knowledge, you know, our delivery mechanism is having these analysts write up products or do PowerPoint presentations or whatever. And a lot of policymakers and decision makers, commanders especially, don't have the time to sit down and read through all those products to get the briefing, you know, to actually read every detail. So there's a lot of um, a kind of a concept I thought of for it was you know, kind of evaporation of knowledge. Like it's sitting there on the decks. And a lot of the intel that we produce is really only us talking to ourselves in an echo chamber in the IC, analysts talking to other analysts. Uh, So with that article, and I should back up a little bit, but I really got interested in it structurally when I was at the National Intelligence University in 2017. One of the last things I was able to do uh, as a a federal employee was very privileged to have the opportunity to go there and get another master's degree. And I ran across the writings of this guy named Josh Kerbell, 
who I immediately saw that and said, wow, this guy gets it and I want to learn from him. He eventually became my thesis advisor. He's written a lot about how the IC needs to change for the 21st century. Um, he introduced me to the, con- to the concept of complexity science. And I got I kind of learned at his, at his, uh, at his knee there. But when I wrote my thesis, you know, that was an official sort of government product. They paid me to write it. Uh, and when I got out of there, I wanted to get it out to a wider audience. Uh, War on the Rocks was a great outlet for me to do that. You know, they were very happy to publish, and I'm, I'm very thankful that they did so. And you're right. I mean, that did get a lot of notoriety. And, you know, I shouldn't say, you know, I'm certainly not the first guy to come up with that. I mean, a lot of people are talking about this, and really, intelligence analysts have been complaining, arguing, trying to figure out how to solve this from way back in the beginning, way back in 1947, if you go all the way back to the start. Um, but I would say that you know that we have a clog in the system that gets worse as the amount of information out there um, keeps increasing, you know, and we still have this outdated mechanism of delivery. We have that's has a red queen effect where we can't keep pace with the volume of information that's growing out there every day. So hopefully we can we can fix that. And then I'm happy since I started writing uh, to meet a lot of like-minded people who agree and want to actually solve this problem and figure out a better way, a new way of doing intelligence for more suitable for competition in the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, really looking at the role of the intelligence as we go forward. One of the things we talked about is really this idea that warfare is going to speed up. This really favors all this fast-flowing information and intelligence um, and, and over the kind of traditional security that we have now in place that's already kind of hard to achieve when you talk about open source and the kind of information that we want out there. And, and you've talked about it, you know, just because it's secret doesn't make it better. Right. Um, the, yeah. the, the idea of this secrecy bias that, you know, if it's, if it's absolutely top secret, you know, behind closed doors, then it's got to be great. And that's just not true. How do we grapple with that, that dichotomy between security and speed? Oh, man, that is a great question. That's actually, I want to write more about that. I'm thinking about it right now. Um, So I think that right now we really can't. I think we're kind of stuck in this, you know, it's it's banal to say, but a, a 20th century industrial age model. Right. It was built for a bygone era where, you know, our primary competitor was the Soviet Union, which in a lot of ways looked like our own system. It was two competing hierarchies. Um, Theirs was probably more stifled than ours. But, you know, we got to look in the mirror ourselves. You know, we have these really rigid organizational constructs. And really, if you look at after the National Security Act of 1947, we built this um, this system that was designed to funnel information up from the world, send it up to the top of the hierarchy, which is the National Security Council, which was supposed to be this kind of brain that sat on top of the whole executive branch and make these rationed reasoned decisions and then flow those back down through the hierarchy. Um, and that's just not the way the world works anymore. I mean, we can't, we can't look at the world today divided up into regional and functional constructs. Um, everything kind of blurs together. The connectivity of the Internet and globalization is making, you know, one part of the world is instantly tied to another part of the world. And each, every commander, every combatant commander knows this. They're charged with global campaigns now against specific adversaries, um, near-peer competitors, whatever you want to call them. But, you know, I think so – and, and you're right. As you talk about, as we keep going into the 21st century, there's going to be AI augmented systems, you know, rapid processing of data. Um, it's going to be systems versus systems architecture. I mean, the Chinese know this and the Russians know this. And the amount of data out there is going to very rapidly, probably already has, eclipsed the ability of unaugmented humans to keep up with it. Uh, and when we talk about, you know, information or intelligence at machine speed or at the relevance of war or whatever, you know, whatever buzz phrase you want to use, Decision makers aren't going to be able to keep up. So 
that's why I, I really think we have to disaggregate that whole system, move it out to a you know a federated sort of network architecture, you know, push autonomy down to the units at the forward edge of the battle area, um, operating on their own, sort of semi-autonomously out there in the dark. Because you know, if we come to a a conflict with a near peer competitor, they're going to be, um, you know, their information connectivity to higher headquarters will be very limited. So, so I want to I want to uh, bring up. Competition now and near-peer competitors and their strengths and, and, and possibly our weaknesses. So it's advantageous for our near-peer competitors to kind of put all their strength into the competition phase. Uh, and that may not be advantageous for the U.S. So how does the U.S. win in competition? Ooh, that's a tough question. I mean, if, I would be making a lot more money if I knew the answer to that one. I think that um, <laughs> um, I, I think first it starts with a realization that – and I, I've written some about this, and a lot of other smart people have too. Um, you know, the character of warfare is changing, and it's not only, you know, we look at it as conflict as war. You know, we think of kinetic activity, force on force, ships, planes, missiles, even, you know, satellites, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I talked about it the other day with somebody that, you know, it doesn't matter if we have all these weapon systems and abilities to win the conflict if we lose in the competition phase. And I really fear that's you know that's the one thing I worry about is our entire that structure I talked about that National Security Act of 1947 structure is very DOD heavy. You know the DOD kind of influences all the sort of organizational structures of our government, even the budget process. And we're not focusing as much on that competition aspect involving the whole of government, to use another buzzword. You know the, the commerce, treasury, state department, um, because that information space is where the competition is is happening today. And it's not just information; it's you know, manipulation of, of public uh, awareness and psychology. It's infrastructural investment, you know, with China, One Belt, One Road. That's a huge thing right now. Um, competition for human talent, recruiting, you know, smart AI experts from all around the world to come come to universities in the United States or Beijing or wherever it is. And also, um, not to mention, um, connectivity infrastructure through things like, you know, fiber optic cables and oil pipelines. I mean, that that is great power competition. And if we look at only as a conflict phase, if that's where we want to win the fight, we're really setting ourselves up for, um, for failure, I think. I think that's really great points. Um, you know, that was exploring a book that you actually recommended to me, China's Second Continent, and it was it was a good exploration yeah. of the way they expand in competition without um, with with a very different paradigm from the conflict that we think about. Kind of kind of in that same vein, you know, we talk about changing character of war and really the changing environment as a whole, and you know, the nuclear triad, you know, being subs and aircraft delivery. And, and those Minutemen missiles, that was that was such a huge part of national security and strategic deterrence um, over the last 60 years. Um, what? How does that change? You know, so we look at the role of cyber and information warfare that we talked about in competition. What does that mean for deterrence? You know, how do, how do you think that we achieve any kind of deterrence in the future when nuclear, in a sense, is not taken off the board, um, but is entirely de-emphasized from what it used to be? Uh, another great question. I, so I don't think uh, I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't say nuclear is taken off the board. Uh, in fact, I think it's increasingly likely that you will see. Um, some sort of nuclear exchange, if there is ever a near-peer conflict, certainly between the United States and Russia, Russia's sort of first step is nuclear exchange in a limited nature, uh, and that can rapidly get out of hand. I do think also that we have to question the entire edifice of rational actor theory and 
uh, deterrence as it sort of was developed in the 50s and 60s because, you know, my personal view, and I know a lot of people will disagree with me on this, and I'm I'm sure I'll get added at lots of people on Twitter about it, but <laughs> uh, first of all, I mean, it was never as cut and dry as it, as it made the claim to be when it was written. You know, human beings are not rational actors. Governments are not rational actors because they consist of people with psychology and, you know, drama and all the other things that we have between us. And then secondly, um, you know, there's such a multiplicity of more actors today that you, if you're deterring one, you may be encouraging another. And it's not, you know, it, it was much simpler in the context of a binary relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States. Like our our goal was, you know, keep the Soviets out, keep Germany and NATO, and you know, or keep the United States in Europe. And that that was a pretty simple paradigm. Not taking away anything from the Cold Warriors. Obviously, the stakes were enormously huge, and we were lucky to get through it. Um, but now, you know, I mean, just you know, China is a world power in its own right. Russia, not not necessarily a global power, but certainly a competitor, and I would even say a pure competitor in many regards. And then there's lots of other rising nations. And really, the thing that I want to talk about more is, you know, in this new age of emerging technology and artificial intelligence, big data, blah, 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 um, smaller middle tier powers are going to reach parity in some capabilities with uh, former superpowers. Just the other day, I saw that, uh, you know, Estonia is advertising their new, you know, unmanned ground vehicle, you know, autonomous combatant vehicle. And they're really, and I, I talked about this on LinkedIn, you know, they are the leader in unmanned ground vehicles right now. And if you look at countries like, um, even like the Emirates, you know, in the Middle East, they have lots and lots of money. They can recruit talent. They give them lots of benefits. And you're going to have outsized effects where small countries can invest in these niche capabilities. You know, look at like drone swarms, right? If you, for the amount of money we spend on one aircraft carrier, you could build, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what the cost conversion is, but a hell of a lot of drones. Um, and you can achieve strategic effects with those weapons, especially as they become more autonomous. So I think that we really need to reconsider all that stuff because we don't we don't have to just monitor you know two plus three or what you know whatever the national uh, defense strategy says. It's really a multiplicity of actors all around the world, from middle powers, lesser powers, and even augmented you know empowered individuals today, billionaires, millionaires, terrorist organizations, non-state actors, multinational corporations. And if you look down the road, you know twenty years from now. These, these capabilities and weapon systems are going to be down to that level. I mean, everybody's going to have them. And what, what can we do now to kind of slow that down or at least put sort of some sort of legal construct around it? I think that's the biggest challenge of the 21st century so far. Yeah, that's, that sounds a lot like uh, complexity science. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. um, you know, th- th- there's all these changes in warfare that we're talking about, um, what the future looks like, and it's, as you talked about increasingly complex, which really brings us to what, what kind of moral and ethical dilemmas does that bring to future warfare? So I think that, um, and again, you know, there's lots of brilliant philosophers out there that are thinking about this and ethicists, and I you know, would recommend you talk to them too. Um, I follow a lot of smart people on Twitter who talk about this, like Dr. Pauline Shanks is one of them who's brilliant. Um, I think that the line between war and peace is going to continue to blur. Uh, you know, we all basically agree now. We, you know, we've been at war for 20 years in the Middle East, but you know, our language is changing. We call it. You know, now we talk about competition and conflict. We don't want to say we're going to be at war with Russia or China or whoever the adversary might be. Um, and really, this you know, the forever war has kind of become the normal now. Um, and those are big, you know, societal, civilizational issues that we have to come to terms with. I also think that 
the distinctions between combatants and non-combatants will continue to blur. And when you look at, you know, 20 years ago, when we got involved in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, now we have uh, ISIS propagandists and guys on Twitter that are like recruiting, you know, or spreading messages. And those guys are targets of kinetic strikes now because they're considered to be combatants in that information space. You know, what's going to happen, you know, five, 10, even now, uh, years from now, where, you know, you have these information domain sort of cyber warriors that are, you know, pushing propaganda or deep fakes or whatever the situation might be to achieve political or strategic effects. I mean, are those valid targets for an army to to go up against? And I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but that's I do think that is the biggest ethical challenge is that blurring between war and peace and the blurring between combatant and non-combatant. Because what is a, you know, what is an act of war in 2025? Yeah, exactly. We'll find out, but. <laughs> is it is a is a economic strike against the stock market via cyber means? Is that an act of war? You know, if you if you were to fly a plane into the New York Stock Exchange, we would say, you know, that's an act of war, obviously. But um, if you crash the entire system with a cyber attack, is that an act of war? What you know, what what crosses that threshold between uh, competition and conflict? Right. Really? You know, and I think that. Um and that's a good point. And, you know, states are, are rightfully cautious about, you know, especially the United States has very ca- been very cautious about wanting to not term those as acts of war because that kind of opens up Pandora's box. But, even, you know, my fear is that even if we reach some sort of accommodation with other great powers or, you know, in the United Nations, if there's a resolution against, you know, use of, of cyber weapons for specific purposes or targeting critical infrastructure, whatever it is, um, that's still, you're still going to have the problem of, of entities not governed under that construct, like corporations and individuals who want to wreak havoc. And you could say that is, you know, criminal activity. And that's, that's one of our other challenges. We typically treat cyber activity as a criminal uh, thing that the FBI is in charge of. But, you know, when it, when those cyber actors can achieve effects that approach an act of war, that's when we have to, I think, start reconsidering what it is and what it isn't. I, I think it also brings about questions about attribution. So in the rapid cyberspace, how do you how do you really attribute that um, to even have those kind of counteractions against that? Especially when you consider that, you know, soon we're going to have AI-enabled cyber weapons that are going to be acting at speeds that we can't comprehend. So are you going to trust another a defensive AI to be attributing and then responding to these attacks in real time. I mean it's a really scary world and one one of the one of the reasons again where I think we have to rethink this whole structure of the way we do interagency coordination decision making at the national level because it's just it's too slow to keep up with the pace of emergent threats today. When when did you come into the army? Zach? I joined the army in 2002, like January, February. It was right after right. 9/11. I went to the um, recruiter Got delayed entry for like six months, I think. So it was like February, March 2002. Given your experience, so you've been an intel analyst, you've been an intelligence sergeant, a command briefer, an advisor, a thought leader really within the national security community. So if you're talking to the young analysts, they're coming in now. Maybe they're maybe they're in middle school and high school right now. Um, that analyst that's going to be there in 2030, what advice do you give to them? They want to be in your shoes. They want to gain an understanding of, of that complex uh, environment. What do you uh, tell them? Well, that's a scary thought. Um, <laughs> So it's funny. I, I saw something today. I retweeted a guy who said that uh, there was this argument online about, you know, the different generations and what ranks they were now. And the real is that, you know, people talk a lot about millennials and talk down to them and stuff, right? A lot of most of us are millennials now, right? Millennials are basically lieutenant colonels and below. 
Um, and somebody reminded me that if I would have gone to OCS when they recommended me to go, I would have been a lieutenant colonel by now. And I was like, wow, that's a really scary thought because I would have been expected to be, you know, responsible for things and, you know, a whole battalion potentially. Um, so, you know, no, I just, you're right. When we came in, it was a completely different world. I mean, I was still taught when I was in AIT, advanced individual training for, for all sorts of Intel analysts. You know, I was learning North Korean Soviet doctrine and this was right at, you know, the outset of the, you know, the GWAT. And um, we didn't really, we didn't know what we were getting into, I mean, frankly. So one thing, I thought about this question a lot. The one thing that stuck with me was my first battalion intelligence officer that I worked for, great guy. I think he's a, I think he's probably a lieutenant colonel now. Uh, he told me that you should never believe your own propaganda, which basically what he meant by that was stay skeptical. So, you know, we talk about a lot of stuff and we kind of have these assumptions of U.S. superiority in a lot of ways. You know, we're doing the right thing. We're going to win. We're, you know, we have superiority in all these different domains. Um, you should always question that. And I think that it, it's helpful for us to stay skeptical in a positive way to help make better decisions and help commanders um, consider their vulnerabilities and, and reconsider their plans. Uh, there's, a, there's a poster in my office at home that says, ask more questions. That's the other thing. So stay skeptical, ask more questions. Uh, I really believe we're living through a revolutionary era and we have to question all the assumptions we've kind of inherited from the past couple hundred years. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is, is read everything. Read everything you can. So I'm going to use the ask more questions segue to ask you another question here. Yeah, great. Um, I'm going to jump back to competition for a second. Because um, we, we refer to them as near-peer competitors. You mentioned maybe China might actually be a peer competitor. Um, but in competition, uh, personnel, talent, recruitment, and retention is incredibly important. What's your opinion on how the U.S. is doing compared to those other uh, competitors, and what could we be doing better to make sure we have the best talent in the world and we can keep that talent? Uh, well, I'll answer that in two parts. One, uh, yes, I definitely say China is a peer competitor, period, full stop. I, in fact, I think we have to break that entire notion of, of couching potential adversaries in the term of near peer because that makes us feel better. It makes us feel like we're still superior in a lot of ways, and that's a dangerous uh, assumption to have. Yeah, China is a peer competitor in almost every domain. They, China is this is a you know hundred year challenge. The United States has never faced anything like it. If you even going back to you know World War II, we fought J the Empire of Japan and Nazi Germany simultaneously in two different parts of the world, you know, with obviously the help of, of, of powerful allies as well. And that was really, you know, we, we could handle that with our gross domestic product and our industrial capacity and what we had at the homeland. Soviet Union. Soviet Union never achieved uh, economic uh, parity with the United States. I mean, their GDP was, you know, roughly uh, half of ours in 1946 uh, because, you know, we were the only country untouched by the devastation of World War II. But China is already surpassing us in GDP and, and not quite in purchasing power parity, but they probably will in the next 10 years or so. Um, and that is, a, that is a challenge that we've never had to face someone on really more or less equal footing. I mean, they're building a world-class Navy. They're building world-class space and air, airborne systems. Um, and that will be, if it ever comes to conflict phase, that will be a, a tough fight. Uh, now, in terms of competition, um, we I think really I mean it sounds um, sounds banal to say, but we got to get our heads in the game. And you know, fortunately, we have leaders at the department who are, are trying to do that. I mean, the national defense strategy is, is great um, for what it is. Um, you know, Secretary Esper now is now pushing this. You know, we're focused China, China, China. But it's getting that message down to 
you know, I mean, the combatant commanders, I'm sure, all get it. Uh, the joint staff get it. It's getting that down to the service level and all the subordinate commanders out there who've spent the last 20 years fighting um, uh, violent extremist organizations and, you know, waging this war in Afghanistan for 20 years. And, you know, God bless them, and we've done good stuff and everything that's been asked of us as a service. But, you know, we have to refocus and prioritize everything against that pacing threat, which is the China challenge. Um, and that's, you know, it's not just in terms of military. That's got to be whole of government, whole of nation, you know, looking for, you know, smart immigrants to come to our country and get Ph.D., STEM degrees, empowering our own people, our own population to do that. Education is probably the, the greatest thing we can do to prepare ourselves for that, especially when you consider the threat to the information domain. Um, and then, you know, government itself. I think the executive branch, and this is coming back to my, you know, my main thesis here, is we have to restructure and reorganize to be fit for purpose uh, for this great power competition we're in. And that means, you know, hiring authorities, reforming the civil service to make it more, you know, the IC has a buzzword now, the, the right, agile, trusted workforce. We need a right, agile workforce across the bureaucracy from the Department of Army, Navy, all the way down to the lowest level. Even, you know, if you think of like, no one thinks of uh, entities like, you know, the FDA or, or really, I mean, even, um, well, pick whatever entity you want within the executive branch. No one thinks of those in terms of great power competition, but they are. They are elements of national power. And really, and the Chinese realize this, it's systems confrontation, systems destruction, warfare. They're going to hit us in our weak spots. They're going to undermine public confidence in our institutions and our governance uh, and really seek to undermine that American credibility both at home and abroad. And I think that is sort of the soft underbelly of America's uh, competition phase today and something we need to look at a lot more. That's, that's a great point. So, so let's transition to our canned quickfire questions here. What technology or trend keeps you up at night? Nothing. I keep other trends up at night. Perfect. Thank you, General Mattis. <laughs> no. <laughs> no I, uh, on a serious note, I, so there's not one – I thought about this a little bit, and I think it's, it's not one key technology or trend, but we have to look more – and this is perfectly in line of my brand – You know the way these, all these technologies intersect with one another. So, you know, so it, one might say the convergence. Right. So convert. Yes, and we, I know that's we a definitely do not use as a buzzword constantly <laughs> a mad scientist. What is something about you that most people might not know? Uh, so everybody, anybody that follows me on social media knows I read a lot. You know, I connect to my Goodreads, and it tells you whenever I'm updated on whatever book I'm reading for the day. But uh, honestly, I learned most of the stuff I know from playing video games. Uh, I played when I was growing up. I played tons of strategy games, all the way from like World of Warcraft when I was 14, or not World of Warcraft, the original Warcraft, Warcraft when I was 14, yeah. uh, to like you know Command and Conquer, and all the way up to the big leagues. Like uh, I got to give a shout out Europa Universalis, my favorite grand strategy game of all time. And, yeah, I think you learn a lot from looking at that from a systems perspective and getting that sort of bigger picture view ingrained to you from a young age. So, kids, keep playing video games. I, th I think that's awesome. We've looked at gamification of what what that can do for how you learn, not just not just with young soldiers and analysts, and um, but with senior leaders even, if we can gamify it and make it something no, usable. If, if we have time, I'll, I'll, I'll add on to that. I think that you're, you hit a point that I've been thinking about is um, – you know, we talk a lot about how we want to use big data 
to like visualize, you know, the battlefield. And that's what, you know, video games have been doing that for 20 years or longer. If you look at like a, you know, a world map on some strategy game, you get all this data about countries and enemies and units. That's what decision makers are thinking of when they want to see a visualization of the future battlefield. So really, I mean, Zach's personal opinion, I think, you know, DOD should bring in more game designers and from AAA companies, you know, out there designing like Call of Duty and whatnot to come in and help design these new uh, visualization systems for the future soldier. Zach, so lastly, and, and probably most importantly, what is your favorite movie? I don't have just one. Uh, on the top of my head, I'm just going to say Ghostbusters, uh, Fight Club, Seven Samurai. Uh, and then I have a, also I have a, a soft spot for anything with Paul Rudd and other mid-2000s romantic comedies. Um, Zach, is there anything else you want to tell our audience, you know, what you're thinking about the future um, and, and all that that entails? So I guess my, my parting thought would be, you know, first of all, thank you guys for doing this. Um, I really love what the Mad Scientist Initiative is doing, you know, from TRADOC, Army Futures Command. I mean, this is you're doing everything we, we think you should be doing, questioning assumptions, bringing in all these, like, you know, I hesitate to use the word, but thought leader from all these other you know communities, uh, not only in, outside the Department of Defense, but services, academia, think tanks, all this other stuff, and sci-fi writers. And really, I mean, that's the only way we're going to get our heads around this challenge is by outside-the-box thinking, putting different people in a room together and having them come up with solutions and causing us to question our assumptions. Um, and then, um, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing and, you know, happy to come back sometime. I'd love to be here again. Thanks so much. And where can uh, people follow you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn uh, and Twitter. Just Zachary Tyson is my kind of stage name on there. Um, Tyson's my middle name. Uh, Z-A-C-H-E-R-Y-T-Y-S-O-N. You know, feel free to come on, engage. I love to have the debate, you know, talk and, and learn. Learn from whoever I can. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming in today. And we had an awesome conversation. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to Convergence. We'd like to thank our guest, Zachary Tyson Brown, for taking time to talk with us today. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Convergence wherever you normally get your podcasts.